0: Good morning. Today's reading is from John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die.
1: Speaking of words, I, d- I doubt I have to convince you that across the board, words are tremendously powerful. They're not a weak thing. They're, they're a very powerful thing. Just, so just stop and think for a minute about all the things that we try to accomplish, labor to accomplish, through our words. So on the positive side, we, we do things like inform or request, or encourage, or warn, or comfort, or persuade, or correct, or rejoice, or grieve, or love. Just to mention a few of our verbal goals. And on the negative side, uh, we can do what? We can belittle, we can criticize, we can discourage. We can mock, we can gossip, we can slander, we can hurt, we can manipulate, we can oppress. And that without even raising my hands. Just with words. You know, King Solomon was right. Proverbs twelve, eighteen, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. What what's Solomon recognizing? Well, it's, it's the fact that the words we speak or write, they don't just exist. They're not just out there like a, like a data point. Whether, whether it's conscious or unconscious, when we speak, when we write, we're, we're trying to satisfy some sort of desire on the inside. Okay, Jesus puts it this way, Matthew twelve thirty four, For out of the abundance of the heart out of what I want and desire or crave on the inside, the mouth speaks. What I want to see happen will determine what I say with my mouth or write with my fingers. That's the point. And friends, the the human authors of scripture, including books like the Gospel of John, they're they're no different in that regard, okay? Okay. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, yes, but they're no different. They, they wrote with a particular aim in view. They have a goal, an intended effect, in other words, that's ordained by God and, and governed by God. And that means that whenever we read the Bible, this is really important, okay? This is good just not for this passage, but anything in God's word. Whenever you read the Bible, you need to ask not just, what is it saying, or what is happening, or what took place, but what is the divinely intended effect of these words? What, what is the author, the human author, inspired by the divine author, what is he seeking to accomplish or, or get done? Well, let's use the gospel of John as an example because we're in this book, okay? John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples... Which are not written in this book, but these are written so that do you hear the intent, the purpose, there's a goal, he's conscious of that. This is what he wants, this is what the Spirit inspiring him wants, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That that's John's goal in writing, the whole gospel. And the Spirit's goal in inspiring him to do that. There's an aim. These words aren't just there. They have an intended effect on what you think and feel and do. The divine author wants you to experience, think about this, the life and joy that's reserved for those who believe that Jesus Christ is immeasurably more than a historical person. He's the Christ, the Son of God. But but what do those titles actually mean? You know, if you've been in church a while, you you've heard those things before. What what do they actually mean? Well, well, I think John eighteen, this passage in particular. Okay, no less than the entire rest of John's gospel. It's it's John's way of double clicking as an author on Jesus' identity. You, you, Maybe some of you read on a Kindle. One of the best things about a Kindle is if you don't know what a word means, you don't have to get out your massive dictionary, right? Because whoever would do that. You, You just double click. You just press on the word. Okay, what does that mean? That's a helpful picture because in this passage, John isn't just telling us what happened to Jesus or what did other people do to Jesus or what went down in Pilate's Praetorium or or what were the Jews trying to get done okay all those are real historical facts but John is telling us those things in a way that highlights specific details that show us what does it mean for Jesus to be the Christ what does it mean for him to be the son of God? He's, he's double clicking on that in this passage. And in this case, he's recording the details of Jesus' Roman trial in a way that helps us recognize, to summarize this, that Jesus is the lamb of God. Here's the outline for the sermon, okay? Who establishes the kingdom of God by declaring the truth of God as a substitute for sinners. that's, That's what it means for him to be the Christ, the son of God. He's the lamb of God who establishes the kingdom of God by declaring the truth of God as a substitute for sinners. So I want us to look at each one of those aspects of Jesus' identity. We'll kind of follow John as he double clicks on them together and look at the claim they make on our life. So first, Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the lamb of God. It's helpful to know here in John 18 that that a great big party is going on, to, to put it mildly, that uh, the Jewish Feast of Unleavened Bread, or okay, the Passover, is at hand. And if you're not sure what that is, in brief, it's an annual seven day festival in Jerusalem that, that commemorated or remembered, almost like a birthday would remember the day you were born, that remembered a, a decisive act of divine redemption in the Old Testament that the day the Lord delivered his people Israel out from slavery in the land of Egypt. How did he do that? Well, he sent 10 plagues on Pharaoh and his people, and the last was the worst. Because the angel of the Lord went throughout the land of Egypt and and killed all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but the firstborn of the Israelites were spared. Why? Why? Well, if you know this story, it's because the Israelites, the Jewish families, they, they killed lambs without blemish and they painted the blood of that lamb around the doorway of their house. And so we read in Exodus twelve twenty three, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Saw the blood passed over. But not, not the Egyptians. And, and they sent Israel away so quickly that night. They didn't even wait for the day. That they didn't have time to leaven their bread. And that's, that's where you get the name of the festival. Which the Lord commanded Israel to keep. That she might remember her need for a savior and God's power to save. And so in Jesus' day, that that was one of the most significant spiritual weeks of the entire year. And it's also the very week Jesus was arrested. Look at verse 28 in John 18. It opens with the Jews leading Jesus from the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, to the Roman governor's headquarters, ruled over by a military prefect named Pilate. But notice, John, again, is careful with his details, and this is not accidental very intentional, they scrupulously avoided entering the actual praetorium. Why? John tells us so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. The Jewish religious teachers, leaders had told them that that if you enter a Gentile dwelling that has a a roof over it, the rule was you could enter a courtyard, but if it had a roof, that was a no-no that you would become ceremonially unclean, un- unable to worship at the festival, to eat for the seven-day party. So they waited outside for Pilate to come to them. Why does John mention that? Remember, he's not just saying, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. He's, he's flagging details that show us something about the identity of Jesus. What, what's he flagging in this case? Well, he's, he's illustrating, friends, Just how corrupted our conscience becomes apart from God. Think about this, okay? The Jews are trying to maintain an outward show of holiness, right? While flagrantly violating the most basic tenets of biblical justice. They're they're condemning an innocent man, Jesus, on spurious charges. They're they're consumed with with the finer points of human righteousness while completely disregarding the righteousness that matters most in God's sight. And I would simply say at this point, friends, we can do the exact same thing. Exact same thing. We we reduce the law of God to a, a list of behavioral rules we can keep without too much trouble don't drink right don't swear stop for old ladies at crosswalks put a put a tithe in the offering basket when it comes around like bible verses on facebook stand for the national anthem vote for the right candidates and attend church on sundays It's possible to do all of that, friends, and completely neglect the weightier matters of loving the Lord our God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. That's scary. That's that's frightening. The Lord isn't deceived by what's going on here, but we deceive ourselves, you know? We, we deceive ourselves into thinking that because we're, we're being a good Christian in all these areas that people can see that are relatively easy, that our selfishness with the rest of our money or our bitterness toward our spouse or children or our sexual sin or our, our lack of affection for God or, or gratitude for the gospel, well, it isn't really a big deal. We, we convince ourselves that, that we're a good person. A good Christian, a real Christian, by, by pointing to all the right things we do that don't really cost us anything or ever force us to, to face the gap between who we are on the inside and the perfect holiness God requires in every area of life. We, we never come to terms, in other words, with, with our rebellious desires, what's in, what's in here, right? To, to be an authority unto ourselves, instead of submitting to the authority of God. We, we quiet our conscience by recalling the apple pie we baked for the neighbors. So many ways. I'm not saying honoring the Lord in the little areas of life doesn't matter, okay? I'm happy to eat your apple pie. <laughs> but I am saying that the spiritual hypocrisy that the Jews demonstrate by, by scrupulously maintaining their ceremonial purity while manipulating the entire legal system to unjustly condemn the Son of God is a case study in the poverty of man-made righteousness. That's what I'm saying. So heed the warning here, friend. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking that, that because you can point to one area of your life where you're doing the right thing that you're innocent before the throne of God. None of us, not not one of us is righteous. No one, including pastors, (laughs) okay? We all need a savior. That's the consistent message of the entire Bible. We all need a savior. And by sending Jesus inside, notice what goes down here. The Jews remain clean, and Jesus becomes unclean. Ceremonial sense, but nonetheless, unclean. And, and by doing that, what are his sworn enemies unwittingly declaring, <laughs> or confirming, or illustrating that, that Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? To whom the festival pointed all along. He, he bears the defilements of our guilt our injustice, our uncleanness on the cross, so that the Lord's judgment might mercifully pass over us. He's the Lamb of God. And the Jews sin in this exact moment. It, it illustrates something of the, the gracious exchange of the gospel, friends. Eventually, Pilate, after some wrangling, he forces the Jews to admit the real reason they were bringing Jesus to him. Look. At verse 31, it's not lawful, Pilate, for us to put anyone to death. Well, there they showed their cards. Right? they wanted him killed. And that, that statement that's historically accurate. Okay? So so you know, the Romans, Roman occupiers, they reserved the right of capital punishment for themselves. That the Jews needed Pilate to find Jesus guilty in order for him to be crucified. And you know, at this point, as you're, as you're reading through verse 29 to 31, th- this back and forth between the Jews and Pilate, and there's so many political barbs going one way. It, it almost sounds like a debate on TV, right? Posturing, tacking, criticizing, manipulating. It, it can feel like Jesus is just a political pawn. Just shuttle back and forth between the, the powers that be. But John recognizes a deeper reality that's going on. Look at verse 32. It's all going down exactly the way Jesus said it would. What, what did Jesus say? Well, back in John 12, he promised his disciples that he would be lifted up to die on a cross. Which means what? Jesus is using even the political divisions and corruption and wrangling and animosity and attacking all of that corruption in his day to accomplish his sovereign will. Tell me that is not tremendously comforting in our own day and age, friends. This is the evening news, right? And Jesus, no less Today, than that day. He's using all of it to accomplish his sovereign will. He reigns over that wrangling as the Lamb of God. He lays down his life not as a hapless victim, but of his own accord. That's the first thing we need to see. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Point number two as the Lamb of God, he establishes the kingdom of God. Look at verse 33. At this point, Pilate brings Jesus inside for a private interrogation. Are you the king of the Jews, he asked? That was a massively loaded question in a historical sense. Let me just explain why, okay? It doesn't just reflect the language of the charge the Jews likely had privately levied against Jesus already in their conversation with Pilate if it's not recorded But it's loaded because, frankly, the Romans could care less about religious squabbles. You think you're God, you think you're God, you think that's God, you think I'm God, whatever, dude. We could care less. They did care a great deal about political stability. About suppressing insurrection. About putting down rebellions and riots and and deposing self-proclaimed kings, zealots, who threatened the imperial peace? Pax Romana. That's Pilate's angle here. But Jesus, look at verse 34, he immediately makes the issue personal. Do you say this, Pilate, of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Or what's, what's, he, what's he asking? Are, are, Pilate, are you asking this question for your sake? Or are you asking because the Jews who hate me told you to? Notice how even when he's under the gun and he's facing imminent death, what's Jesus doing? He's on mission. He won't stop. He's still on mission. He's lovingly pressing, confronting Pilate to do business, to deal with his own personal beliefs about God. And Jesus' question immediately turns Pilate into the defendant. And Pilate can feel it, right? So so he immediately tries to reassert his authority in verse 35. Look there. Pilate answered, am I a Jew? I mean, come on, Jesus. don't, Don't make this about me. I'm not a Jew. And frankly, I could care less who the king of the Jews is supposed to be. There is one king in my book, and it's Caesar. This is about what your people, your own people, think of you and want from me as a result. So let's cut to the chase. What did you do, pal? I'm a practical man. I'm a pragmatic man. What did you do to get yourself handed over to me by your own people? Because they want you dead. Are you threatening Rome? Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 36. So significant for us, friends. Jesus replied, My kingdom, Pilate, is not of this world. It's not of this world, buddy. The the, the kingdom Jesus describes, what's he saying? Over which he rules, is the kingdom of God. And it does not consist, at least not yet, Jesus is saying, of a visible reign on earth, like, like what the Romans enjoyed. Or, or Pilate for that matter. It's a, it's a spiritual kingdom in the heavenly places. To, to use Jesus' words from the Gospel of Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven, invisible to the natural eye, but not one bit less real. And that's why Jesus said all the way back in John 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Remember that? You can't see the kingdom of God unless the Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes, opens your spiritual eyes to see the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, our need for a savior, God's provision, his saving sufficiency in Christ, the the whole kingdom of God, the the joy of living under his redemptive rule as an adopted son or daughter of the king. All of that, that, that's just going to remain invisible to you. You're blind to that. Best case scenario, it it sounds like it's just a great big joke. I mean, a a fairy tale at best. Maybe maybe you've experienced that in conversation, Christian, with a non-Christian friend. You've you've been talking about the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, the saving sufficiency of Christ in some way, or just even part of that. And and you just think, I'm getting the distinct sense they think I'm smoking something. That I'm out of my mind. Am I out of my mind? (laughs) You know? No, you're not, because it's not until the spirit moves in our hearts, friend. And we we respond to God's free offer of salvation by trusting Jesus to give us life instead of trying to create life for ourselves. Only when that happens does a miracle occur supernatural miracle where where we're taken out of the kingdom of this world, out of the realm of slavery to sin and death, and we're brought into the realm of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're brought under his redemptive rule with the life and joy and holiness that go with that. That's the work God does. So Jesus is saying, Pilate, listen, I have a kingdom, but it is not of the Roman sort. It's not a a kingdom of this world maintained by human swords and spears that's, that's forcing men to begrudgingly submit to one another against their will. To bring it a little closer to home, it's not a kingdom secured through constitutional amendments or congressional legislation or marches on Washington or Supreme Court appointees. As helpful as those things can be, Why not? Because friend, the kingdom of God is of an immeasurably greater sort than all of those things. Than all of that stuff. It is a kingdom wrought by the spirit of God, ruled over by the Lord of the universe, where men are compelled to joyfully embrace and wholeheartedly submit to the authority of God as his spirit transforms us from the inside out. That's radically greater than the last march on Washington. And to prove his point, Jesus adds, look, if my kingdom were not of this world, Pilate, verse 36, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the the Jews. But Pilate, I haven't raised an army. I haven't sought to stir up the masses. Why not? Because my kingdom, listen, is neither inaugurated nor maintained through human striving. Ooh, we need to hear that. We need to remember that. In our friendships, in our parenting, in our politics, in our, our church life, my friends. To put it bluntly, whenever you find yourself pushing or pressing we're fighting whether, whether verbally or physically to make somebody else believe what you want them to believe or do what you think God wants them to do. Wherever you're, you're laboring under the crushing weight of, of striving to make God's kingdom come to pass. Hear this, you are laboring in vain you're laboring in vain you're at best you're spinning your wheels what's it sound like well if you don't apologize to your brother right now kid you're grounded for life unless you start listening to me like the caring husband you're supposed to be i'm getting a divorce I won't talk to you or go to community group with you until you admit that what you posted on Facebook last night is hurtful and wrong. I know you told me you're not interested in Christianity, but I'm going to keep arguing until you realize that all the lame excuses you've brought to me thus far are completely irrational. we, we, we could add to that list, right? What, what's the point? Friends, trying to do God's job for him never works. Never works, not, not only because God is too jealous for His glory, but but in a primary way, because we are powerless as human beings to change the heart of man. We can't do that. We, we do not establish God's kingdom. Jesus does. We do not build God's kingdom. Jesus does. And and wherever self-sufficient striving is masquerading, hiding itself as some some sort of altruistic concern for the kingdom of God, we we need to humble ourselves, friends, and acknowledge the truth. We're, We're not seeking God's kingdom at all. We're seeking our own. And we need to repent. The kingdom of heaven advances. It's part of what Jesus is saying here in all of its life giving beauty through situations that look and feel like massive setbacks in the kingdom of this world. Do you realize? Look back at his words to Pilate. My kingdom were this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews and all the suffering and oppression. I'm about to experience therein. But not only was, was being delivered over to the Jews, not a problem, ultimately, right? It, it was the very act of wickedness that Jesus actually used to accomplish his saving work in accordance with his perfect will. What's the point? That, that there is no, you will never find, friend, an act of human injustice, or human oppression, or an experience of suffering on planet earth that can stop King Jesus from establishing his kingdom and perfecting his good and perfect work in your life. You will never find that because it does not exist. We're part of a heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12, 28, that, that no power on earth can threaten or destroy. Our life is now hidden with Christ in God, Colossians 3, 3, and the essence of his kingdom. Is not health or wealth or prosperity in this life because it is infinitely better than those things. It's joy and holiness and hope, gladness of heart, through intimate relationship with the King of Heaven, friends. That that no Handed over to the Romans, or no suffering you may ever experience in this life can stop or derail or prevent from going down. Jesus' kingdom rolls <laughs> because King Jesus reigns. It's not the kingdom of this world, subject to pandemics and all manner of other problems that rightly send us running back to our King, lamenting our sorrows. Help, Lord. But we've got to remember, nothing in this world can touch the kingdom of God. Because it's the kingdom of heaven. Jesus establishes it. So, how does he do that? Here's point number three by revealing the truth of God. He's the Lamb of God who establishes the kingdom of God, parentheses, not you and me. By doing what? Revealing the truth of God. Look at verse 37. When Pilate responds, So you're a king? I told Elisa earlier, this feels like an argument with your kids gone awry. You know, it's just like back and forth. Well, and Jesus kind of, he basically demurred, right? He says, well, you said it, but not in sort of a, you know, QI roll kind of way. No, why why does he put the the ball back in Pilate's court? Because he knows, hear this, he knows that that Pilate's whole concept of kingdoms and kings is is of an entirely worldly sort. His definitions are off, in other words. And Jesus knows that that the fullness of the kingdom of God and what it means for Jesus to be a king cannot be contained in Pilate's little paltry concept of what it means for him and Romans to be kings and have kingdoms. So he's got to blow out his categories. It doesn't come to pass through human striving Pilate. It comes to pass like this. Look at verse 37. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world. To what? How does the kingdom of God go down? By Jesus bearing witness to the truth. I came to bear witness to the truth. I didn't come to raise an army. I came to bear witness to the truth. Notice he's affirming the reality of his humanity. He really was born as a man and he's affirming the reality of his deity. He came into the world. Why is that necessary? Because he eternally existed outside of the world because he is apart from the world as the God who created the world. And he came to earth for a specific reason. To what? To bear witness to the truth. That's not new. John 1 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he, Jesus, has made him known. So think carefully about this, friends. Jesus reveals, what's he saying? He reveals the truth of God through the nature of his person and the character of his work, culminating at the cross where his manifold excellencies come most fully into view. That's what he's saying. The, the, The cross confronts us with what? The justice of God. That he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the cross confronts us with what? The mercy of God. He takes the punishment we deserve on himself. That the truth that Jesus came to bear witness to, in other words, is chiefly the truth of the gospel. And so when when Jesus speaks of his mission, to bear witness to the truth, to to the word of the gospel, okay? Okay. He's not leaving the whole kingdom and king theme behind. He's, he's filling king and kingdom language with radically new meaning. But he, he's saying to Pilate, listen, my kingdom is not from the world. And so I don't establish my kingdom or exercise my rule the way kings on earth do, through servants who fight for them. Well, how do you establish your kingdom and exercise your rule in Jesus? Well, I do it through the life-giving power of my word. The word of truth, the word of the gospel. We we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that the word of God is not just something that, that chills out there in spiritual space, like an encyclopedia on your shelf at home that looks great when company comes over, but you never actually read. God's words aren't just out there orbiting somewhere, okay? They're more than available information. God's word is is how he exercises his power in the universe. So when he speaks, things happen. That's the point, right? Stars appear. (laughs) And storms are stilled, and, and demons flee, and, and dead men walk out of tombs. And the word of the gospel is no different than those other words. It doesn't just inform us of God's power to save. Oh, by the way, new data point. God is able to save. No, it does more than that. Through, through the regenerating work of the Spirit, the word of the gospel actually changes us from the inside out. So the gospel makes us love God where we once hated him, or or makes us want to confess our sins, where we once hid them, or or makes us want to honor God with our bodies, because we know he purchased us at the cost of his own blood. So, So by bearing witness to the truth of the gospel, to the saving power of his life and death, it's by doing that very thing that Jesus establishes God's redemptive rule. He brings his kingdom to pass in the hearts and lives of his people. In other words, he exercises his reign and he builds his kingdom through the power of his word centered on the word of the gospel. It's not king and kingdom bearing witness. It's I, my kingly reign goes down by bearing witness. That's his point. And his truth telling forces us to make a decision. Every one of us, friends. Look at verse 37. He keeps making it personal. Will you listen to Jesus' words or not? Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You realize that whether or not you listen to Jesus, which isn't like, oh, by the way, tuned into your sports radio thing in the morning. No, listening means paying attention and embracing, believing, taking to heart the truth of what he says. Whether or not you do that is not a morally neutral issue, friend. Oh, some people are into Jesus, some people are not. Well, it's, it's all good if you do you. No, whether or not you listen to Jesus is what determines whether your life is built on the truth or your life is built on a lie. It's not inconsequential. Truth isn't found by looking within yourself, Jesus is saying. Truth is found by listening to Jesus. You'll you'll never find the truth. You'll you'll never know the real God or the real you by listening to your voice. You'll only know the real God and the real you by listening to Jesus' voice. Always, always. At which point, Pilate, look at verse 38. (laughs) He throws a postmodern flag about two millennia before its time. (laughs) Can I put it that way? (laughs) Verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? You know, there's a, this is actually really sad. There's a deep irony here in that the one person charged by Rome with determining the truth in Jesus' situation writes off the entire concept. Just writes it off. I mean, maybe he thinks truth is irrelevant. Back to the whole, I'm a practical man. You know, it's just all those philosophers in Rome, Athens, they're just always speculating, whatever, (laughs) I care about who's in charge. You know, maybe he thinks there's so many versions of truth that it must just be unknowable. Here's what Pilate failed to grasp. The truth is not a what. It is a who. It's not a what. It's a who. The truth is the revelation of the character and ways of God in the person and work Of the Son of God. Born as a man, that's what Christmas is all about, to rescue us from our sins. Truth is not an an esoteric or unknowable idea. It's, It's not a quest without a destination. Heard that before? Truth is a person, friends. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who establishes the kingdom of God by revealing the truth of God, which is preeminently what? The glory of God, his justice and his mercy, and his power to save sinful men. That's the truth. And Jesus does all of that, point number four, by becoming a substitute for sinners. Look at verse 37. It's it's remarkable. Back to details matter. How throughout this entire chapter and nineteen, by the way, when we get to that, John keeps using Godless Pilate's words to tell us true things about Jesus. You know, it's it's just like back to the political wrangling thing. Everything people are doing, it's it's just all being bent and used and guided and directed to fulfill the Lord's purposes. It's amazing, friends. So look at verse 37. Pilate goes back out to the Jews and declares what? I find no guilt in him. I mean, for knowing what we know, reading that, verse 38, is that not the greatest understatement in the entire passage. I find no guilt in him. Of course you don't pile it. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He's the one before whom the angels hide their faces. It's that one, Pilate, that you were interrogating. Because you thought that with your limited human creaturely mind, you could pick some bones with the Holy One, you could lodge an accusation that might stick. You could say, God, you're clearly not being fair. We're treating me justly, we're doing what's right, we're being wise in this situation, clearly. Friends, God is always the innocent one. Because He's perfectly holy. There is no accusation were conceivable charge in the universe that could ever be levied against God and in the smallest part, stick. He's perfect. And if Pilate were a man of integrity, at this point, game over, right? Legal case closed, dismissed, Jesus exonerated, but Pilate is not ruled by the truth. He's ruled by a thirst for political power so he recognizes that the Jews vehemently, strongly disagree with his verdict. He can feel it, right? He's, he's not a new kid to the block. So he gives him an option to maintain Jesus' guilt, but not put him to death. Notice that. It, it's kind of a savior face kind of offer. It, it's a politically savvy offer. Designed to curry favor with the people. Look at verse 39. You have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? I mean, remember, Pilate doesn't actually believe Jesus is a king of any consequence, right? Right? If anything, calling Jesus the king of the Jews, it was just another subtle dig at both Jesus and the Jews at their political impotence and the folly of the entire charge. I mean, he's, he's mocking them all, basically. And John carefully records the people's reply in verse 40, look there. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas, Who's Barabbas? Well, John informs us at the end of verse 40 that, that he was a convicted robber. And the Gospel of Matthew adds he was a notorious prisoner. And Mark adds that he was a rebel, an insurrectionist who, who committed murder. But most likely he's part of a, a guerrilla band that terrorized, I mean, he's a domestic terrorist. The countryside attacking wealthy Jews and Romans. Basically, in contrast to Jesus, this guy is profoundly guilty on multiple counts. And the people's response, it it reveals that they're not concerned about truth or justice at all. Not at all. They they despise Jesus, especially his claims to divine authority. How do we know that? Because they would rather pardon and release a convicted terrorist than exonerate the son of the almighty God. That's a picture, friend, of the depth of our collective enmity toward God as sinners. And in a world that gets this very wrong and mixed up, hear me, whether you are black or white, whether you are a member of a perceived majority or minority, our natural, deepest, innate, born into the world with it, allegiance is not to truth or justice. It is to my own authority. And the t-shirt says, I will be God and God should die. We are, can we be honest, in our sin, we are more than willing to sacrifice truth and justice if it's necessary to maintain our independence from God. And so they choose a man whose name Barabbas literally means son of the father over Jesus, who's what? The true son of the father. They choose a man who's utterly guilty over a man who's perfectly innocent. They choose a robber over the good shepherd. And and that's a picture of what we all do, friends, when we reject Jesus for everything else the world offers. Why do I say that? Well, because when we do that, we're we're choosing what will ultimately steal and kill and destroy and rob us. It's the insanity of sin. And the exchange here could not have been more shocking, but it was not an accident. It wasn't an accident. It was ordained by God because it directs our attention to the very heart of the gospel. What's that? That is the lamb of God. Jesus doesn't establish God's kingdom by fiat power. Okay? No, he becomes a substitute for sinners. That's how he does it. The innocent one is condemned and the guilty one is set free. That's the heart of the gospel. And, And so if you want to behold the love of God for you, my friend, you need to look there. You need to keep your eyes there because when you look there, what do you see? You see Jesus allowing a murderous crowd to trade him for Barabbas. You see an exchange. And then you need to consider, friend, that that is exactly what King Jesus has done for you. Exactly what he's done for you. He's, he's not like... Back to double-clicking, what's it really mean for him to be the Christ, the Son of God? Well, it means he's not like the kings of this world, who just fight to preserve their own life. He what? He's a king, a different sort of king, who gives us life by laying down his life. That's the gospel. This whole chapter, will end with this. It, it really forces us to consider. And this is so good, friends. How are we responding to Jesus? <laughs> not, not just in the past, but, but right now. Are, are you listening to Jesus' voice? Are you paying attention to the word of the gospel and, and the claim it makes on your life as a sinner who needs a savior? Or are you scurrying around trying to, to maintain your own righteousness or, or establish God's kingdom for him? That The humility that we need, frankly, to trust Jesus to bring his redemptive rule to pass in us and around us comes in two ways, okay? First, we need to recognize the poverty of our good works to commend us to God. The utter poverty of our good works. Confess to the Lord where you, like the Jews, have tried to, to cultivate your own righteousness in achievable areas, instead of honestly dealing with the, the deeper sinful desires in your heart. Confess your need for a savior in those areas. And then second, rejoice in the utter sufficiency of Jesus' work on your behalf, friend. Romans 5, 8 says what? While we were still Sinners while we were still resisting the truth like Pilate, or, or eminently guilty like Barabbas, we're blind to the glory of God like the jeering crowd, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He, he's done all that's necessary to make you right with God, friend. Christianity is not about you doing more things for God. It's about recognizing and trusting and rejoicing that God has done all of it for you. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. That's why it's good Jesus came. Because he's the lamb of God. Who establishes the kingdom of God. By speaking the truth of God. As a substitute for sinners. None who hope in him will be disappointed. And none who come to him will he ever cast out? This is the word of the Lord, church. May it not return void. Let's pray. King Jesus, first of all, thanks that you're the king. (laughs) Thank you that you're the king. Thank you for the glorious freedom that comes from discovering that you don't need us or even want us to establish your kingdom. That's your job, Jesus. It's your kingdom. And you do that by bearing witness, by revealing, by proclaiming, by by bringing to pass the glorious truth of the word of the gospel. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for being a God that is full of mercy and grace and love and compassion towards sinners like us. Thank you for making the great exchange for humbling yourself in obedience to the will of the Father. For saying, for saying, I'll walk into that praetorium. I'll be flogged. I'll be beaten. I'll be mocked. I'll be scorned. And yes, I'll be crucified. So that men and women like us, like Barabbas, could walk out of the praetorium. Thank you, God for that exchange. And we pray that this Christmas season, as we linger on a passage in your word that we might first associate with Easter, I pray that it would bring new meaning to the goodness of your birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.